All right, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 19 and 20 this evening. The handouts are at the back. Let's begin by asking the Lord's blessing upon our study. Gracious God, particularly God the Spirit, you who inspired the record of these words, please illumine our minds and hearts to understand them and to be drawn into the drama of them. The life that is revealed here through David the king and those around him who loved him may redound to the glory of him who is great David's greater son and we who love him. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. We want to begin uh, this evening by looking at chapter 19 and establishing the narrative units, structure, and then the unfolding drama of the narrator's macro structure or macro narrative. So let's begin by asking some questions about this narrative units of of chapter 19. And as you scan uh, down that chapter, or if you've had a chance to read it, uh, what would you suggest as uh, the first narrative unit here in this chapter? Margaret? Where's, where's, the, where's the first story? Bob? Johnson? 1 through 7. 1 through 7, all right. Proposal 1 through 7. So we would have the narrative of David and Jonathan, right? All right, where would your next narrative unit be? What do you think, Kay? Well, maybe through 10, I don't know. All right, we could say 8 to 10, all right? Because why do you say that, Kay? Because there we have David and and Saul, okay? Next. Ben, where's the next one? What do you think? 11 through 17. 11 through 17. Good. Okay. 11 through 17 because there we have what? Ben? David and Michael. David and Michael. Okay. All right. And where's the next one? Terry, where do you think the next one is? Anita? Eighteen to twenty-four. Who do we have there? David and Saul. David and Saul, and who else? Samuel. And Samuel. Okay. Now, I'm going to put 
uh, 1 through 10 together, and I'll indicate in a minute why that's so. But nonetheless, you've uh, done well in instinctively uh, separating out the narrative units. And you will notice that in every one of these units, we have David and Saul. The unique individuals in each of the narratives are Jonathan, Michael, and Samuel, who are featured. Two of those individuals we have had before in the previous chapter, chapter 18. So there is a narrative continuity between what's going on in chapter 18 and chapter 19 because the major players are once again featured in the two successive chapters. Well, let's ask ourselves the next question. Since they are playing again on the stage in chapter eight, uh, chapter 19 as they were in chapter uh, 18, what is the narrator doing by recording these successive narratives about these individuals? Is there something about the development of the character of these individuals that he is tracing? Does he see some kind of relationship between the characterization of Jonathan in chapter 18 and the characterization of Jonathan in chapter 19? And if so, uh, what is that? Uh, So as you think about how Jonathan is portrayed here in chapter 19, think about how he was previously portrayed in chapter 18. Uh, what what do you see? Do you see any expansion of his uh, character? What was noteworthy about his character in chapter 18? He loved David. All right, now that's repeated here, isn't it? It's repeated in chapter 19. But there's something more here in 19, isn't it? Isn't there? Don? He's willing to give up on his father for David. All right. uh, So he's going to do what for David? Oh, he's going to spy on Saul. Mm, Okay. He's going to, what word am I looking for? He's going to do what? Protect. Protect. Intercede. Intervene. Yes, he's going to be an intercessor for David. So, Here is Jonathan's character merging and expanding and developing from love to love and action in terms of intercession. All right, so we see more of Jonathan's character as we move from 18 to 19. Now, what about Saul himself? Is Saul just a flat character that he doesn't doesn't develop here in chapter 19? Or is Saul actually a dynamic character, something going on here in chapter 19? You're nodding your head. I've forgotten your name that you came from last week. But at any rate, uh, what, what's, what's Saul? Are you nodding at the, that you know the answer or are you just nodding? <laughs> He's madder than a wet hen. <laughs> All right. Saul's character is definitely expanding in terms of his own murderous intent. In other words, we see more of that and more intense in it. He is madder than a wet hen. All right. Now, what about Michael? We had Michael in chapter 18. What about Michael here in chapter 19? She was described as one who loved David in chapter 18, like her brother, Jonathan. And here she is playing the role as one who delivers David. Uh, Is she therefore uh, saving David's life like her brother is saving David's life up here in verses 1 to 7? In other words, do we have an expansion 
of Michael's character as a mirror of her brother Jonathan's character. I don't think so, but I will make my case when we look at it in detail, okay? But you might be inclined to think that she is in the same role as Jonathan. I think the narrator portrays her differently as we will see when we look, in it, look at it in a bit of detail. And what about Samuel? Here's Samuel appearing with David for the first time since he anointed him back in chapter 16. Is Samuel's character developing? And if so, what, what's added here? What dimension do we see? Samuel, the provider of refuge. Samuel, the provider of an asylum. Samuel, the provider of an escape route or an escape refuge. All right, now, uh, there is character development going on here, and that's the reason we have the duplication or the repetition of the characters. Our narrator wants us to see something about these individuals as they themselves develop in his overall plot. Now, that raises the question, what is his overall plot? What's the plot development that's behind his narration? Well, as we stand back from this, we see that the center of the plot or the center of the tension, the center of the conflict in this drama is Saul's inexorable attempt to kill David. And that plot scheme is going to dominate chapters 19 to 26. Saul's inexorable pursuit of David. Now, he has tried before chapter 19 to kill David. He tries to do it again here in the 19th chapter, in chapter 18. He tried to do it again. But once again, let's ask about what the narrator is doing. Is he developing some nuanced difference between what Saul tried to do to David in order to kill him in chapter 18 and what he's doing now in chapter 19 and will continue to do up to chapter 26? In chapter 18, notice how Saul plots to kill David. By the Philistines. Chapter 18 is Saul using outsiders as those that will dispose of David. Is that what he's doing in chapter 19? Now in chapter 19, what's he doing? Kristen, you you shook your head no. What's he doing? He's actually acting out against him physically by trying to kill him himself. Mm. Pinning him, pinning him to the wall with the spear. Who's he using now? He's using insiders. So the descent of Saul in the spiral of his enmity against David has now shifted, shifted from using Gentile outsiders, heathen henchmen to kill this uh, a servant whom he despises, to now using his own children, using his own family members. Thank you. So this is a descent uh, into uh, a real malicious type of manipulation on Saul's part. And so we've turned a corner. The narrator has turned a corner in his plot 
uh, development by showing Saul's resolve to pursue David relentlessly unto death, even to the point of using his own family members to get him. Now, after verse 10 of this chapter, after 19.10, David will never again place himself in harm's way in front of Saul. He will never be proximate, that is, he will never be nearby Saul again, save fortuitously, save by accident, save when he runs into Saul. In other words, from 19 on to chapter 26, Saul is the pursuer and David becomes the fugitive. Some of you got that. All right, let's uh, let's pause now to take a look at the issue of the structure, because this is a neatly structured chapter. There are uh, markers, there are literary markers that uh, show the break points here. And uh, so I want you to focus uh, on verse 10 and then on verse 18 and then on chapter 20. Verse 1. What do you see in verse 10 and verse 18? You see a duplication? Margaret? David fled and escaped. He fled and escaped. Now, these are not the exact same Hebrew word roots for fled and escape in both verses. They are variants. Nonetheless, the idea of David fleeing is present in both uh, categories of uh, Hebrew lemma, Hebrew root. So that's the reason I'm going to put 1 to 10 together, okay, because of the literary marker. And that will then isolate 11 to 17 as a second unit, and then 18 to 24, which is also uh, bracketed with fled and escaped to chapter 20. Verse 1, and in chapter 20, verse 1, we have a repetition of the word fled again. Consequently, we have structural units, structural narrative units of 1 to 10, Jonathan and Saul and David, 11 to 17, Michael and Saul and David, 18 to 20, verse 1, Samuel and Saul and David. Now... As the narrative unfolds in this chapter, the true king, David, the anointed of the Lord, draws key characters into his own drama. He is pulling these figures within his own circle. That is, the narrator wants you to see the impact of David's life on the life of those around him, particularly those who love him and are devoted to him. His story becomes their story. They are focused upon him as the object of their own narrative drama. They themselves pledged to saving David, protecting David, loving the king-elect of the Lord. So the drama is unto the interface between the lives. 
their lives are being drawn within the circle of the protological king. But there's a subplot here, and it arises from the continuity of the characters, as we pointed out, the fact that they are characters that precede in chapter 18 and succeed again in chapter 19. Our narrator features the continuous hatred of Saul, for instance, from chapter 18 to chapter 19, and another figure continuously acts in character, Jonathan. Jonathan will be changeless, consistent, unalterably loyal in his love for David. And the preservation of his beloved friend's life will be the singular focus of his character here in chapter 19. From chapter 18 to chapter 19 to chapter 20 and beyond, Jonathan is ever the same. Loyal, trustworthy, intercessor, preserver of the life of the true king. Now, Michael would appear to mirror her brother here in chapter 19 in her love for David, as well as in her deliverance of David. But Michael disappears from David's life in this chapter. The narrator withdraws Michael from David's life in this chapter, and this is the narrator's way of indicating that she is an ambiguous character, conflicted, and compromised in several ways. Now, I want to say more in justification of that later on, but in fact, Michael here in chapter 19 is the mirror of Merav, her sister, in the previous chapter, chapter 18. Merav, who disappears from David's life story in that 18th chapter. Now, you may be wondering if I'm unaware of the other mentions of Michael. No, I'm not unaware of them, but please hold off on lambasting me for that for the time being. Uh, She disappears from the story at this point. She will not reappear until chapter 25 when she will be not David's wife. She will be the wife of another, verse 44 of 1 Samuel 25. Something happens here in chapter 19 that makes Michael conflicted. The narrator wants us to see that. All right, let's go back and look at the characters somewhat uh, meticulously and individually, beginning with Jonathan. What is Jonathan's goal in those first 10 verses? What's he driving at? Why does he appear in the narrative? Why does he come to David as he does? What's his purpose? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's exactly the word we wanted. You notice in verse 7 that he brings them to peace or reconciliation between one another. So hostility, which opens this section of the narrative in verse 1, passes through the intercession of Jonathan, verses verses 2 through 6, to result in reconciliation in verse 7. Temporary reconciliation, but a successful respite 
because the son of the rejected king delights in the elected king. And so he plays mediator between the two in order to make peace. Now, verse 3, with its four I personal pronouns, emphatic initiative as well as emphatic loyalty from those four I, 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 I's. And a marvelous picture of a godly mediator and intercessor. For anyone who takes the role of a mediator and intercessor must take the initiative I to intervene. Those who have acted with belligerence are reminded that enmity is sin. Notice the bracket in Jonathan's speech. Verse 4 in its opening and verse 5 in its closing. He presents his father's sin by placing it in front of him at the beginning and at the ending of his speech to his father. He then declares David's innocence. He has not sinned against you. The antithesis between Saul's attitude and David's actual behavior. And then Jonathan underscores David's integrity. David's integrity by observing David's commitment to benefiting Saul and his kingdom. David has done good to you. In the integrity of his heart, he has done good to you. Why do you return evil for good? He even put his life on the line so you can continue to wear your crown. You were an eyewitness to the deliverance of the Lord through this faithful servant of yours. Why are you implacably hostile to him? Jonathan does not permit the enmity of his father to fester. He draws out the poison by pointing to the kindness with which Saul has been treated. And does real kindness always turn away suspicion, hostility, even sin, not when the hostile party continues to nurse the grudge, will not repent of sin and moves on to the next act of enmity, as Saul does in verses 9 and 10. Jonathan pointing to the Lord and his deliverance in the context of Saul's sin does not bring Saul to the Lord in sorrow for his sin. The Holy Spirit must bring Saul's heart to the Lord and to a genuine sorrow for his sin and even a new life of affection for the elect of the Lord. But Saul, like other adamants, will not. No, he will not. Acknowledge his sin and turn to the Lord with sincerity, even though he has a place in the Lord's visible kingdom 
and the external assembly of the people of God, he will not give up his grudge. The window dressing of verse 7 spirals downward into further enmity in verse 10. Saul's apparent reconciliation is apparent only. The true Saul is revealed by his ongoing hostility. And the evil spirit from the Lord only visits Saul's already evil spirit to reinforce its native evil. And now to Michael, verses 11 to 17. The parallels with verses 1 to 7 and her brother, Prince Jonathan, are striking. The narrator has done this intentionally. There are parallels between Jonathan's intercession and Michael's. David's life, again, is in danger in both Jonathan's characterization in verses 1 to 7 and Michael's characterization in verses 11 to 17. David has been warned by a prince in the first seven verses. Here he is warned by a princess. The parallels, once again, are intentional. David escapes Saul's wrath. Under Jonathan's intercession, David escapes Saul's wrath under Michael's delusion, deception. So we ask the question, is our narrator using his Semitic device of repetition or narrative duplication once more, or are the similarities functioning in some other way? Is he saying, I'm reinforcing the portrait of beloved Jonathan with beloved Michael. I'm duplicating them in order to reinforce the mirror between the two. Or is he doing something very different? Let's investigate the text. What strikes you about the beginning and end of this unit, verse 11 and verse 17? What strikes you about the beginning and end. Who's in control? Michael speaks in the beginning and Michael speaks in the end. She has the first word and she has the last word. She is the queen of the hill. She is controlling this drama. The narrator wants you to see her in her role as a manipulator. What strikes you about her procedure in this narrative unit? How does she act in this narrative unit? Deception. How many times deception? 
verse 14 and verse 17. Twice she lies. Twice she lies. Now the narrator wants you to see something here. Like father, like daughter. Like lying Saul, so like lying Michael. Now granted her lies are, shall we say, for a greater good. But her character is not the reflection of her brother's character. Her brother directly confronts his father with his sin and does not lie about David or his role in interceding for David. But Michael does. She's a deceiver. That is at the root of her character. And not only is she a deceiver, what does she do in her characterization of David in verse 17? She lies, lies, yes, but how does she characterize David? He she misrepresents his character because she represents his character as the same character as as Saul. He's as murderous as you are. He threatened to kill me just like you threatened to kill him. He has as murderous a heart as you do, Dad. So not only does she lie about what David did, but she tries to make David look like her reprobate father. She is not the mirror of Jonathan. So we don't have narrative duplication here. We have narrative contrast here. This is the characterization of antithesis. And the narrator does it so that we won't miss it. He places her right in between Jonathan and Saul as she is ambiguously ambivalent, looking on the one hand to save David's life, but on the one hand characterizing him very much in terms like her father. This conflicted, manipulative, managing all circumstances woman is a woman who will keep those characteristics and reveal them more and more as we meet her subsequently in the David narrative. She appears the erstwhile tragic wife, handed around from David to Palti in 1 Samuel 25, 
44, and then back to David again in 2 Samuel chapter 3. But in truth, she is as manipulative there as she is here. What woman in love with her husband allows herself to be seized and snatched away and given to another man who does not see that movement as in her own self-interest. She is very much willing to be used by Saul to manipulate Palti because David is on the run. And she doesn't want an absentee husband whom she can't control. She'll take this wimp of Palti and she'll manage him very well. She will try to manipulate David one last time in 2 Samuel 6 when he brings the ark up to Jerusalem and he seeing her for who she really is, contemptuous of him, contemptuous of David. He sees her for what she really is. He will husband her no more. No more will you come to my bed. Never. And Michael disappears completely. This characterization here in chapter 19 is fraught with foreshadowing. Narrator is giving you a clue as to what moves this woman. And it is not the preservation of David's life primarily. It is her control of David's future, her father, and the circumstances of that night when she let David down through the window. Michael has far more of her father's character than Jonathan. Manipulative as well as a base liar. Our narrator places her between the virtuous Jonathan and the murderous Saul. Between the two, her ambiguity fluctuates back and forth, hot and cold. Now we must pause here. And turn to Psalm 59. So keep your finger in 2 Samuel 19 and turn ahead to Psalm 59 just for a moment. And as we glance at this psalm, you will notice the title or the heading to the psalm, which reads in part, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Psalm 59 is written out of the historical context of 1 Samuel 19. And you will see the direct reflection of David's sense of urgency in verse 3. For behold, the psalmist says, they have set an ambush for my life. The principle of the headings is not inspired These are headings which have been assigned by Jewish tradition. And yet the tradition in this case does make sense. There is a verse in the psalm that does comport or uh, line up with the incident in 1 Samuel 19 verses 11 
to 17. If we have a little more time at the end this evening, I want to come back to Psalm 89 and do a scansion of it. That is, I want to look at its structure and what may be the thematic development of it. But uh, keep in mind that this psalm comes out of the historical experience of David uh, in the instance of Saul's hatred. That principle is essential to understanding the Psalter. All of the Psalms have an historical context. Whether we can assign it or not from a heading or from some internal <clears throat> testimony or internal witness to a historical event, this we know. The psalmist did not sit down to write poetry in a vacuum. They wrote poetry in response to what God had done in history. Some historical act of God has caused them to break forth in poetic praise and song. Whether we can identify that certain event is not the issue. It is there somewhere because what the psalmist is writing is not Robert Barrett Browning, Elizabeth Barrett Browning or William Shakespeare or any other uninspired poet. He is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit out of God's mighty acts of grace in history. Don't read the Psalter as devotional literature. It is redemptive historical literature. It is coming out of the interface between the psalmist experience of God's grace and something that's happened in history. He's on the line of history and God has broken into that line of history with his grace, deliverance, redemption, etc., etc. You have to read the Psalter that way or you are no different than reducing it to Bob Dylan. Don't use the Psalter as a devotional placebo. Get into the drama of the history of the experience of the psalm writer. All right, now, verse 18. Back to 1 Samuel 19. David comes to the place to which Samuel retreated after he was anointed. Remember, at the end of chapter 16, Samuel goes to Ramah. And now, David flees to Ramah. Remember the anointing in chapter 16, the anointing in which the Holy Spirit came upon David? That anointing is now reinforced by our narrator with this incident in the school of the prophets, an incident in which the Holy Spirit is poured out prophetically, poured out charismatically in order to arrest Saul to arrest Saul and his messengers and thereby to protect David from Saul and those messengers. Why does David flee to Samuel? Where else could he go save to the prophet who had anointed him and to the protection of that prophet's ministry? The narrator is not only showing us the flight of David for safety and refuge, he is reinforcing, he is duplicating the character of the anointer. Samuel had poured out the anointing God, the anointing power of God in that oil, and the Spirit had come upon David. David then flees to the arena of the Spirit. 
And the one who was the vehicle or the messenger of that spirit in his previous experience with him. Now, the location of Naoth in the text is indicated as near Ramah. It is not a separate town. It is not a separate village. It is a meeting place. It is a meeting place of the school of the prophets who meet there to prophesy. I like what one old 17th century writer said about this uh, term, Nioth, which is difficult to translate. He said, it is a school of doctrine, quaint but effective. It is a place where the prophets are learning under the inspiration and endowment of the Holy Spirit. David has had to flee the arena of Saul's house in verse 10 of this chapter. Jonathan unable to protect him. He has had to flee the arena of his own house, verse 18. His wife, Michael, unable to protect him. So he flees to the arena of Samuel, the prophets, and the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit of God. Notice how he runs to the place of ultimate refuge, the overarching shadow of the wings of the Almighty by the pouring out of his spirit. And here at Naoth, the spirit of God stops the messengers of Saul by overcoming them with charismatic prophecy. Three times the Holy Spirit endues these enemies of David with the gift of prophecy and stops them from pursuing and capturing David. Please notice the mention of the threefold messengers in the Michael incident, verse 11, 14, and 15. More symmetry, three visits of messengers in verses 18 to 24. Now keep in mind that the spirit endowing these evil-minded messengers of Saul is no indication that they are regenerate individuals. He is subduing them to his purpose as he subdued Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 to 24 and as he subdued Judas Iscariot to his purposes. There is no indication of the person who has received the endowment of prophesying is a born-again individual. None whatsoever. Being able to prophesy proves nothing about your spiritual condition. Nothing at all. Judas Iscariot could do it and Jesus says in Matthew 7 that many will come to him on that day and say, did we not prophesy or he do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus will say, I depart from me, I never knew you. All right, so we understand that this charismatic endowment here is God protecting David by subduing even those that hate him with an ecstatic gift. Even Saul is exposed. Exposed by the Spirit of God. Saul is exposed as a naked, raving imposter. Stripping himself of his clothes, he divests himself of his royal dignity. And he exposes his kingship as naked and shamed, deceitful, murderous, shame. To save David from death, 
The Holy Spirit strips Saul of his dignity. He will be stripped again. Saul will be stripped of his weapons on the day when he is stripped of his life by the Philistines at Mount Gilboa in chapter 31, verse 9. Is our narrator foreshadowing Saul's latter end here in Saul stripping himself before God strips him at last and for all. Mm. When Saul first met Samuel in 1 Samuel 10, verses 10 to 12, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul so that he prophesied and the people said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now Saul is before Samuel for the last time. And again the Holy Spirit comes upon him so that he prophesies and the people say, Is Saul also among the prophets? As a sign of his election as king, the Holy Spirit causes Saul to prophesy. Now, as a sign of his rejection as king, the Holy Spirit places a confirming seal upon the raving naked king and causes him to prophesy. Is there an anti-sacramental seal by the Spirit? Ooh. Ooh. An anti-eschatological seal? Ooh. Don't you dare come to the Lord's table unprepared. Don't. David seeks protection and confirmation in Samuel, in the prophet's arena. And in that arena, the Holy Spirit endorses him for the second time. Behold my anointed. Saul seeks execution. And his own confirmation in Samuel and the prophet's arena the Holy Spirit exposes him. Strips him of all his dignity. Final preserver of the life of David against his murderous antagonist is not Jonathan. Not Michael. Not even Samuel. But the final preserver of the life of David against his murderous antagonist is God, the Holy Ghost. And that is the message of Psalm 59. God is my stronghold, my sure refuge. That's the reason the psalm matches the story. Now, I must address the relationship between 1 Samuel 15.35 and 1 Samuel 19.24, the text in front of you. The former statement 
1 Samuel 15:35 reads, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, quote, unquote. And the verse before us this evening, verse 24, Saul too prophesied before Samuel, quote, unquote. We have an apparent contradiction in the text. An apparent contradiction. Well, let's go back to 1 Samuel 15.35. And let's translate the Hebrew literally. This is what a literal translation of 1 Samuel 15.35 would read like. Quote, Samuel did not add to see Saul up to the day of his death, unquote. Now, notice that peculiar grammatical structure, the verb add plus an infinitive, to see, add to see. It is a construction that occurs very rarely in the Old Testament. It does imply that Samuel did not add himself or join himself to Saul in order to meet him or have any further relationship with him. That is, no additional, add himself, no additional seeing as a relational meeting between the two. Here in chapter 19... Saul being, quote, before Samuel, or literally, as the Hebrew says, in front of the face of Samuel, does not imply any further meeting of relationship between them. Saul is merely cast down by the Holy Spirit before Samuel, or as the literal Hebrew says, in the presence of Samuel, and proceeds to prophesy in his shameful self-exposure. Being able to read the Hebrew text is helpful in setting aside an apparent contradiction, for it is apparent only. There is no actual contradiction or tension here as a careful reading of the inspired Hebrew version indicates. Samuel did not see for the purpose of meeting him in a relationship. Samuel did see him when he was laid out in front of him in his naked state of ecstasy. But that was no dialogue between the two of them. No meeting of the minds, shall we say. That's the import of that text in chapter 15, verse 35. The downward spiral which holds Saul in its grip draws the characters of this chapter into its vortex. Jonathan's faithful intercession for David draws his reconciliatory effort into a maelstrom, the fury of his father trying to kill David again. David, back in Saul's presence through Jonathan's mediation, barely escapes, barely escapes being pinned to a wall in murder. 
Michael's duplicitous defense of her husband draws her Saul-eyed character into the web of lies, twice over web of lies. And the re-imaging of her beloved husband as a threatening, abusive, murderous man just like her father. Samuel cannot prevent the assault of Saul and his henchmen on the school of the prophets. Only the Holy Spirit of God can prevent the gyrating downdraft of evil and enmity from destroying the Lord's anointed. The Spirit strips and abases Saul in order to expose his depravity, naked and hysterical. Touch not my anointed is written over David by God the Holy Spirit himself. God subdues and confounds the enemies of his elect by the Spirit, the Spirit of royal endowment. Notice how dramatically contrastive is the characterization of David and Saul at the end of this 19th chapter. How contrastive is Saul in relationship to David at the end of this chapter. The royal dignity is with David, not with the man that wears the crown. The royal endowment is at the same time the spirit of restraint and preservation, confounding the schemes of this evil king and his false, his kingdom falsely so-called. You will recall that last week I suggested that Jonathan is the Old Testament John the Baptist, the forerunner and friend of the royal bridegroom. In the antithetical clash of two kings and two kingdoms, even the eschatological friend of the eschatological king cannot save him at last from his enemies. The harbinger friend of the true heir of the kingdom is destroyed by the very same enmity that destroys his beloved anointed, spirit-drenched friend. This eschatological forerunner will be conformed to the measure of the suffering of his eschatological Lord as he awaits the arrival of the eschatological kingdom of heaven in a prison cell. Go and tell John what you see and hear the miracle signs of the arrival, the miracle signs of the presence of the kingdom of heaven, the blind see and the lame walk, and the lepers are made clean, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. Go and tell John, and tell him this, as well, that the poor 
have the gospel preached unto them. The evil spirit will enter the heart of the consummate changeling, the ultimate traitor. And even the obsession of this one with his own self-destruction is just like Saul. Yet Judas is among the disciples, endowed with the Spirit, working miracles, while finally given over to Satan in the hour of darkness and the power thereof. The drama of protological loyalty, intercession, ambiguity, oppression will be played out once more. Once again, in the fullness of time, in the eschatological drama in which the king, who is God's incarnate heart, when the son and heir, who is God himself, when the Lord, who is the spirit, humiliates himself to naked exposure. Naked exposure, oppressed, pursued, betrayed, crucified. The enemy so apparently triumphant in the murder of the Lord's anointed. So apparently triumphant for three days and three nights. That murder victim, despised and rejected king, is raised in the spirit, translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, victorious over his eschatological oppressors, sin, death, treachery, murder, dissembling, lying. I never knew him. And that king, better than David, is your king. That kingdom, better than David's, is your kingdom. The downward spiral that sucks you into its vortex sucked your Savior and Lord into its maelstrom. But he stopped it. He arrested it. He put an end to it once and for all. And he brought you, this eschatological king, son of David, brought you spiraling upward. When he rose again from the graveyard of all that treachery and depravity, bondage and evil, he brought you spiraling upward with him and seated you in the vortex of the kingdom of heaven in heavenly places together with him that where he is on high there, there you may be also glorified together glorified together with him in a kingdom of never-ending glory. 
protological David's narrative experience is but a faint anticipation of the narrative experience of the eschatological David drawn into David's story. You are drawn into the story of David's Lord. This story is your story because it is your Lord's story. All right. Do <clears throat> you have any questions or comments before you stretch your legs? And then we return to look at chapter 20. Yes. So there's no parallelism between Michael lowering David out of the window and Rahab lowering the... Only insofar as they both save a life in the process. But no, what's behind Rahab's delivering those spies is her great faith in what she has heard about the God of Israel and how she accepts that uh, that testimony and gives her own creed uh, by her own confession, uh, duplicated in Hebrews chapter 11. No, there's no testimony of faith here in Michael delivering David. She is just simply trying to save him for her own future purposes. We're not going to make a heroine out of Michael, at least in this class. All right, take a break. All right, now, if you turn with me to the next chapter, to 1 Samuel 20, we once again have a narrative duplication. Now, in this case, we have a duplication of the covenant features of chapter 18. Only once again here, there is an intensified narrative dramatic context. I'm making this point about the relationship of chapters 18 and 19 to what succeeds them, that is 18 with 19 and 20, because there is an enlargement, there is an amplification, there is a development going on as we move through the narrative. Whereas in chapter 18, the covenant between David and Jonathan provided no terms of the arrangement. No terms were discussed or stipulated. This chapter provides the particulars of the covenant relationship. Now, it is suggestive, I believe, that chapter 18 describes the covenant without provisions while chapter 20 adds the details of the covenant relationship. So let's pause to reflect on biblical covenants in general and this illustration of the genre in particular. The fundamental element of the divine covenants is, I shall be your God, and you shall be my people. You have a number of lists of the texts in which that formula appears. It also appears in 2 Corinthians 6.16, which I think is very important. Paul uses it, quoting Leviticus 26.12. Whether it is Adam in the garden, Abraham in Haran and Hebron, 
Israel at Sinai, David in Jerusalem, Jeremiah and the New Age, Christ in the upper room, the fundamental element of divine covenants is relational. I will be your God. I will participate in a relationship with you and you will participate in a relationship with me. That is the covenant formula. God participates in a relationship with Adam in the garden. Adam enjoys a reciprocal relationship with his creator in the garden. God participates in a relationship with Abraham in Haran and Hebron. Abraham enjoys a reciprocal relationship with the Lord God in Haran and Hebron. God enters into, participates in a relationship with Israel at Sinai. Israel participates in a reciprocal relationship with the Lord at Sinai. So, too, God and his covenant with David, Jeremiah's promised new covenant, Christ's covenantal relation with his disciples in his final Passover with them. The relational aspect of divine covenants is prior to, that is, antecedent to, any terms, provisions, or stipulations of that covenant. God's relationship with Adam in the garden is antecedent to his declaration regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's relationship with Abraham is prior to his threefold declaration about a land and a promised seed and an international blessing. God's relationship with Israel at Sinai as gracious savior from Egyptian bondage is prior to any and all legal stipulations of relational gratitude. And so it is with all divine covenants. The relational is prior to the stipulational. The relational is prior to and antecedent to the stipulational. Let us pause to consider why this is so. First, there is an obvious logic and propriety to it in the nature of the case. God the Lord must draw near to the creature in a wonderful relationship of loving divine self-disclosure, a divine initiative in which he reveals or discloses himself as the creature's Lord and God. Even sinless Adam in the garden must experience God coming to him first in a relationship of love. Unfallen Adam 
the object of God's relational desire. God desires to have a relationship with Adam. And so he makes himself known to Adam by lovingly coming to Adam in the garden. Here is a picture of that marvelous phrase in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 1, quote, some voluntary condescension on God's part, unquote. You see the picture in your imagination. God in his glory presence willingly condescends to relate himself to disclose himself, to reveal himself to sinless Adam. God comes down to Adam. God voluntarily condescends to come down to Adam, comes down to the level of the creature in order to establish a precious relationship with his Son by creation, as Luke calls Adam in his genealogy, Son of God. Do you get it? This wonderful condescension of God is a benevolent act on God's part. He wishes well to his creature, and so he condescends to enter into a relationship. Benevolence on God's part. An act of goodwill. An act of motion. God moves towards the creature. But he must initiate The relationship. What a glorious condescension this is that the all-eternal, all-magnificent God of everlasting heaven would humble himself, voluntarily condescend to participate in a personal relationship with the creature he has formed from the dust of the ground. What a glorious condescension that is. God enters personal relationship with the creature. And why is this so? Is it his kindness that moves him to condescend? Is it his goodness that moves him to condescend? Is it his grace that moves him to condescend? Or the Hebrew term often translated as grace, is it his hesed? His loving kindness that moves him to condescend. We ponder God's moving into a personal relationship with sinless Adam. We ponder God's moving into a relationship with sinless Adam. And we are confronted with these elements of his divine condescension. 
But let me suggest that what moves God to come to relation with his creature is a dynamic and dramatic aspect of his glorious being, which is antecedent to the creation. We have noted this principle of antecedence in divine covenants with humans. God first acts in establishing relational covenant intimacy, even with sinless Adam in the garden. God first acts to establish covenantal intimacy, even with sinless Adam in the garden. And he does so because of the prior antecedent relational nature of his being, his triune being, his eternal relational inter-Trinitarian participation in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit intimacy. The interpenetration of tri-personal divine relationship is the antecedent foundation of the triune God establishing interpersonal relationship between himself and the creature. Prior to God's personal relationship with Adam is God's personal relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a personal relationship. Eternal and ontological and metaphysical. And is the very substratum of him seeking personal intimacy with a creature that he's made in his own image. It is this inter-Trinitarian personal relationship which explains the extra-Trinitarian personal relationship with Adam and all human creatures. That eternal, loving, delightful relationship between the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the precious foundation of divine relationships with creatures whom he has made in his own divine image. You see what we are realizing. Any relationship God enters into with Adam flows out of the antecedent relationship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have with one another. An everlasting, interpersonal, intertrinitarian relationship is the relational paradigm for God relating himself to his image bearer. You must not think That creation is the beginning of God. He has eternally before the beginning been personally related. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from everlasting to everlasting intertwined in the intimacy of a loving personal dynamic. What more obvious than he would seek such personal drama with the creature he has made. Now, having explored a little more of the formula, I shall be your God in relationship with you, and you shall be my people in relationship with me. Having thought a little more deeply about this covenant formula, we may now ask ourselves about the covenant stipulations or the covenant terms. But we understand this, do we not? This is clear, is it not? Before any stipulations, relationship, antecedent to any terms of the covenant is the covenantal relationship. That loving, affectionate, kind, benevolent relationship of God's voluntary condescension to be related in self-disclosure and in personal revelation. We see this in the covenant between Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel 18. Their loving relationship is revealed. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. That is a relational dynamic. That is a relationship of intimate love. No terms, no stipulations, no conditions are listed. That description is simply the antecedent personal affection which bound Jonathan to David and bound David to Jonathan. Thus, when terms or stipulations or conditions appear in a covenant narrative, they flow out of They are subsequent to the covenantal relationship. In fact, all stipulations, conditions, terms of a covenant come after the relationship is established. Notice how this is true for Adam in the garden. The condition of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil comes after God has entered into a relationship, a personal relationship with Adam. He has formed him. He has placed him in a garden. He has fellowshiped with him as friend with friend. Only then does he add the stipulations of the covenant with the tree. This is also true with Abraham. God enters into relationship with Abraham by calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Loving Abraham's soul and personally relating himself 
to Abraham's sinful heart by regenerating his heart so that Abraham, idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees, can answer the call of God's entering into that revelational relationship with him. Come to Haran, Abram. I am calling you to Haran, Abram. And Abraham went out, related to the God who had called him. And surely, surely we may see this with Israel at Mount Sinai. Does not God even declare his antecedent relational participation in the salvation of Israel from bondage in Egypt before he sets down the legal stipulations of the covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Legal stipulation cannot precede redemptive relation. Legal stipulation may only succeed redemptive relation. Israel comes out of Egypt before Israel receives the legal terms of God's covenant. The grace of God's saving relationship is antecedent prior to all and any performance of legal conditions flowing out of redemptive relation. In truth, all of Israel's conditions, all of man's conditions, all of any sinner's conditions, all of even sinless Adam's conditions, are grounded in an antecedent act of God. God acts with Adam in the garden before Adam performs any condition. God acts with Abraham in Ur before Abraham responds to any covenant stipulation. God redeems Israel from bondage before Israel undertakes any stipulation of the covenant. The legal or stipulational or conditional cannot precede the relational, the personal, the I will be your God aspect of a covenant. Perhaps the easiest way to grasp this is to think of the marriage relationship, which is so often used in the scripture as an illustration of the covenant. No marriage begins with a legal stipulation or conditional terms. A marriage begins with a loving attraction, an affectionate relationship which develops, develops towards the intimacy of marital union. That mysterious union may be recognized by legal terms and provisions. But these are subsequent to the relational affection, which is the prior ground of that union. I may add 
that the act of marital union is not an experience of legal or conditional or stipulational reality. No happy Christian couple is contemplating legal conditions or stipulations on the night of their honeymoon. They are imbibing deeply the relational experience of interpersonal ecstasy as the Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 1 indicates. Drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers, God says. Ain't no legal conditions on that experience. These considerations will help us greatly in the proper order and relation of covenantal conditions and covenantal relations. We will never be tempted to place the condition before the relationship as if law is prior to divine condescension or law is prior to grace. Whether we are talking about a divine covenant with a sinless creature or a divine covenant with a sinful creature, God must first, in both cases, voluntarily condescend to the creature in order to participate at his initiative in a covenantal relationship with that creature. Adam in the garden, Abram at Haran, Israel at Sinai, all must first receive God's condescension before any legal terms or stipulations are undertaken. And when those legal conditions are undertaken, they are never an antecedent to God's kindness, God's benevolence, even God's grace, as if they could extract from God on the basis of legal precedent a kindness or benevolence or even gracious blessing from God. What does the Son of God, our Lord Jesus, say in Luke 17.10? When we have done all that is required of us, we are still unworthy servants We have only done what we ought to have done. That passage alone is the death knell to any suggestion that legal performance will exact divine reward. Even if you did all that you were required to do and did it perfectly, Jesus says, you would not have obligated God to give you one iota of a reward. Not one iota of a reward in this temporal world or in the eschatological world. Nothing you could even do would do be any more than what you ought to do even if you did it perfectly, for perfection is what you ought to do. And doing what you ought to do earns you no bennies. It earns you no rewards. It gains you no merits. Doing what you ought even perfectly earns you no rewards, no temporal rewards, no eternal rewards, no rewards for doing your duty, even if you did it perfectly. 
That is the teaching of I will be your God, you will be my people. My relational precedent will be the ground of your relational subsequent. You will be related to me only as I am first related to you. Any legal stipulation will only declare that. It will never be the ground of that. The legal terms of Jonathan's covenant with David are revealed subsequently to the establishment of the relational covenant in 1 Samuel 18. The antecedent covenant aspect is not the terms of the bond in 1 Samuel 20. Prior to the covenant terms in chapter 20 is the covenant relation in chapter 18. And so it is with all biblical covenants, whether in unfallen man or fallen man. First, I will be your God. Then you will be my people under my terms, grounded in my prior relationship with you. Law cannot trump relationship, or we have fallen into the error of the Judaizers at Galatia, the Roman Catholics at Trent, and all others who want to suggest that the worthy ground of blessing The worthy ground of blessing is performance of legal stipulation. Such suggestions turn biblical covenants upside down. Such suggestions turn biblical covenants topsy-turvy and sow confusion, if not worse, among the people of God. This is consistent historic Orthodox Calvinism. This is the uniform testimony of the Reformed confessions of the 16th and 17th century from England to Poland to France to Switzerland to Cambridge, Massachusetts. It is the uniform testimony of the Reformed doctrine of the covenant First, initiatory relationship by divine initiation before any response to stipulational obligation. And even when the response to the stipulational obligation is performed in some measure, it is never performed perfectly nor meritoriously, for no sinner could ever perform any meritorious act. Jesus says, God doesn't reward you for doing what you're supposed to do perfectly. That's what you owe him. He doesn't give you presents for giving what you owe. Let's identify the narrative units here in chapter 20. As we take a look at verse 1, and we notice that we have a 
scene shift or a change of location. David moves from Rama and Samuel to some other location and Jonathan once again. We may want to hold off on identifying that location right now unless someone would like to venture their reputation and suggest where he is as he changes locations. Uh, no angels rush in. No fools rush in. Ed Saul's place. Ed Saul's what place? What would you, what would you call Saul's place? Yeah, he had his house or a palace. Very good. So it's in it's in Saul's court. Okay, very good, Kay. All right, so he goes to the place where Jonathan is, which is Saul's court. <clears throat> and what follows? What follows in this narrative unit? The dialogue, isn't it? The back and forth dialogue. David to Jonathan, and Jonathan to David. Notice how it goes back and forth. Jonathan said to David, verse 4, David said to Jonathan. This is a kind of chiastic reversal as we work our way through this unit. Until, where does the dialogue stop? Where does it break off? Or where do we have a change of location? Into the field in verse 11. So there we have a narrative unit, verses 1 to 11, or 1 to 11a, part a of verse 11, if we say a and b in that uh, unit. The first unit is 1 to 11a, and then the b, 11b, starts another narrative unit. Now, as I look at 11b and the note about in the field... And I scan down the passage, trying to set apart the next narrative unit. Where do I stop? At verse 24. Very good. For once again, I see in the field a parallel narrative marker. And what follows between 11b and 24? We had a dialogue between David and Jonathan in verses 1 to 11. Do we have a dialogue here in verses 11b to 24? No dialogue, is there? It's a monologue. It's Jonathan speaking to David throughout this unit. David simply listening until verse 24 when he hides in the field. And so we'll go to 24a, David hid in the field. And now our next unit is going to begin with 24b. David in the field, Saul and Jonathan where? Okay, this is your question. They're back in the palace or in the court. Very good. So from 24B, we have a, uh, a, 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 a location which is the same until we change 
seen or changed location again where? In verse 35, Jonathan goes out to the field, so he's not in the court or in the palace anymore. He goes out into the field where David is, and that lasts until when? We're looking for a change of location again. And came, and came to. Twenty-one verse one came to Nob. All right. So the next unit goes all the way to twenty-one one a. So from thirty-five to forty-two, or actually twenty-one one. Now, before I talk about this uh, narrative development. Uh, a little further. I want you to notice 21.1, and I want you to turn back to 20, verse 1. What do we have, Ling? And... Well, okay, you're at 21.1. I was, I was beginning to look at 20, verse 1. <clears throat> In 21, he fled and came. He came to, to uh, Rama. He came to Jonathan, rather. He fled from Nioth and came to Jonathan. 21.1, he came to Nob. He came to... 21, David comes to. 21, 1, David comes to. We have an inclusio bracketing that whole narrative section. It is framed by David's movement, David's change of location. At the opening of chapter 20, changes location to come to Jonathan at the court of his father. At the end of that narrative, he changes location and goes to Nob, to the priest Ahimelech. So our narrator, once again, has framed his drama with a bracketed inclusio. He's framed it. So he's included within the frame this drama between David and Jonathan, and Jonathan and Saul, and David and Jonathan again. So from verses 1 to 11a, they are at court. And you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 20, David said to Jonathan, and in verse 11a, Jonathan said to David, chiastic reversal, another underscoring of the integrity of that narrative unit. Verse 11b to 24a is the second narrative unit in the field. We keyed on the word field in 11a and field in 24a. Then 24b to 34, they are at court. Notice in verse 24b, that is in the second line of verse 24, the phrase new moon. Look at verse 34.
you see it again, the phrase new moon. So that unit is bracketed or framed by the term the new moon. And finally, in verses 35 to 42, where Jonathan and David are in the field, notice in verse 35, Jonathan uh, went out into the field. The name Jonathan plus a verb of motion. Jonathan went out, verse 35. Then in verse 42, Jonathan, verb of motion, went into the city. Exact parallel Hebrew phrases. So we are framing that final narrative scene in the field by, again, a duplication of vocabulary. Each narrative unit is framed at the beginning and end with a repetition or a duplication of the precise Hebrew word or Hebrew terms. Our narrator is doing this in order to describe his narrative frames, like he's rolling his camera, and the frames of his action are catching the sequence of the narrative drama in this chapter. All right, now, we have parallel narrative structure here. At court, 1 to 11. At court, 24b to 34. In the field, 11 to 24. In the field, 35 to 42. We have parallel narrative structure. Even as we had narrative symmetry in chapter 19, we once again have narrative symmetry here with Virtual duplication of location, twice over. Why is he doing this? The parallel is to also, the parallel in the narrative drama is to parallel the reflection of David in Jonathan and Jonathan in David. Notice in verse 1 what David says. What have I done? Now, look at verse 32. Who says it now? Jonathan says it. The very thing that David says, Jonathan says as a reflection. Jonathan, the mirror of David. Verse 17, echoing 1 Samuel 18, 1. In verse 17, Jonathan made David vow because he loved him as he loved his own life. The reciprocal love between David and Jonathan, the mirror relationship of personal affection between the two of them is underscored in this drama as it unfolds. And finally, the final mirror reflection in verse 33. Where the same thing that is done to David by Saul is done to Jonathan by Saul. Jonathan being drawn into conformity, mirror reflection, conformity to the life of his very own elect king and sovereign.
The relationship between Jonathan and David draws them into a virtual mirror image of one another in affection, in loyalty, in story, even in murderous threat. For the bond which draws them together also mirrors the broken bond which drives them respectively apart from Saul. They are drawn together as they are both drawn apart from Saul. The rupture in the relationship between Jonathan and his father in verse 34 is a recapitulation of the rupture in the relationship between David, Israel's champion, and Saul, Israel's king. Saul alienates both his loyal son and his loyal servant by abusive, murderous behavior. Ironically, Saul even sees the mirror. Notice verse 30. You are choosing. The Hebrew is very graphic here. You are electing the one God has elected. God has chosen. It's exactly the same Hebrew word that is used in 1 Samuel 16, verses 8, 9, and 10, where God says, I have not elected this one. I have not elected this one. I have not elected this one. Saul knows that David has been elected by God. Out of his own mouth, he condemns himself. Unwittingly, Saul ratifies the election of David as his very own successor and insults his son. Viciously insults his own son for recognizing the very same divine election. You are a perverse son of a rebellious woman hiding behind the shame of your mother's nakedness. How low can you get? This degraded, vicious, insulting man who would talk to his son that way. But the bond which binds David and Jonathan, verse 23, mirrored and paralleled in verse 42. Oh, that narrative symmetry and parallelism again. The Lord between you and me. It is the centrality of the Lord which draws David to Jonathan, Jonathan to David. The Lord at the center of their relationship. The Lord's hesed, his loving kindness, his Gracious or merciful, loving kindness received by them both, reflected by them both in assurances of mutual hesed, mutual loving kindness to one another. What a sweet, loving relationship this is, this covenant relationship. It is a picture of heaven's sweet loving, eternal relationship where the Lord is forever the center of focus for all whom he has bound together in his hesed, 
his eschatological loving kindness. That loving kindness does change the way you act. It changes the way you treat others. It changes the way you relate to those whose lives are centered upon the king, on the son of David, on the one who has made an everlasting covenant with us. Now, I have a few minutes, and as I mentioned, I'd like to go back to Psalm 59 just for a little bit and quickly uh, do a scansion of this psalm, or that is a uh, once over lightly, in order to point out some interesting aspects of this uh, great poem. I'll give you the clue to begin. I want you to note verses 6 and 14 of Psalm 59, verses 6 and 14. And you will notice that they are exact duplicates. They are, in fact, refrains. They are refrains. For this is a poetic song. So there are at least two units in this psalm. There are two portions to this poem that pivot on a refrain, at least two. So the refrain is the place where we begin, and we'll begin at the last one. We'll begin at verse 14. And we'll look around verse 14 to see if there is anything that, shall we say, folds in that refrain. Is there anything that sandwiches the refrain of verse 14? Verse 17. For God is my stronghold. My God shows hesed to me, loving kindness. Okay, the phrase, for God is my stronghold. My God shows hesed, loving kindness to me. Now, is there any other verse that is symmetrically parallel to that? which would then fold in the refrain of verse 14 between the beginning verse, which is parallel to verse 17. And your eye runs back up to verse 9. Yes, for God is my stronghold, and we have to go into verse 10. My God, his hesed, his loving kindness. All right, so we have the first Unit Actually, the last unit of this psalm, structurally, this psalm is bracketed between 9 and 17 with a refrain at verse 17. All right, now let's go to the other section that has the refrain in it. Let's look up at verse 6, which is sandwiched between, once again, a possible symmetrical parallelism. And so I look around, and I find verse 8. Which begins, Thou, O Lord. And I look up. And what do I scan? Verse 5, Thou, O Lord. Sandwiched between the refrain in verse 5 
is the parallel or symmetrical thou, O Lord, in verse 8, and thou, O Lord, in verse 5. I have the second unit of the psalm. The third unit is verses uh, 9 through 17. The second unit is verses 5 to 8. By process of elimination, that leaves the first four verses. So I ask myself, is there any symmetrical parallelism in verses 1 to 4? And I start to scan verse 1. And I scan verse 2. And immediately I recognize that there is a symmetrical parallelism between deliver me from in verse 1 and deliver me from in verse 2. Parallel symmetry duplicated again. Which leaves only verses 3 to 4. And what do I have there? I have varieties of words for sin and guilt. Three of them. Sin, guilt, and transgression. They pick up a word in verse 2, which is iniquity, which is different from all. All of those four Hebrew words for sin, guilt, transgression, iniquity are different Hebrew words. But they pick up verse 12. One of those Hebrew words picks up the word sin in verse 12 so that verses 1 to 4 are connected to verse 12. And the beginning is connected to the ending of this psalm. Verses 1 to 4, a plea and declaration of integrity which features their guilt, not his sin. Verse 3. Verses 5 to 8, the prowling of those who threaten his life is broadened to the nations. Verses 5 and 8, the nations as emblematic as those who are prowling to ambush him, they are like the heathen in their murderous character. And finally, verses 9 to 17, a declaration of faith and petition for righteous judgment upon the wicked, that their sin will be repaid. God, the refuge and stronghold, more than any other human resort, the psalm ends with, God is my stronghold, not Jonathan, not Michael, not Samuel, but God the Lord, and that two times over. As David imprecates God's judgment, in his integrity against those who have sinned against him. He is not claiming to be sinless himself, but he is saying that he is not the object of their sin for any transgression of his own. He defends his integrity by pouring it out before God. And so the three sections of this psalm progress from the uh, integrity of David's uh, innocence to his uh, acknowledgement that those who prowl against him are like the ethics of the heathen, the heathen nations, and God will judge them. And in the last section, his uh, detailed calling upon God for not only that judgment to preserve him in his loving kindness as his great and strong refuge. Well, that's a little bonus uh, 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 <clears throat> Uh, beginning to uh, break down uh, that uh, 59th Psalm. Uh, But at any rate, uh, you're free to go if you need to go. If you have any questions or anything you'd like me to respond to, I'll be glad to comment.
Yes, Kay? What about time frame? How long has this taken? Years? Months? What, what we studied tonight? Is there any way to know? It's more like months, Kay. It may even be days. Uh, in other words, there is a kind of rapid fire development occurring here from the first events of chapter 18 to chapter 19, which seems to follow pretty quickly on the heels of that. And then the response to 19 is 20, where Jonathan now reinforces David once again, only now David is in the fugitive status of being hidden in the field. So I I don't think we're talking about years, and I don't think we're talking about many months, okay? So short a short period of maybe one month or a few months or maybe even days and weeks happening very quickly with the antipathy of Saul brewing and festering and becoming explosive very rapidly. Thank you. Pete. The uh, next chapters, what are they? Yes, chapter. Uh, we'll go on to chapter 21 and 22 next week. Try to do tw- two chapters a week. Ling. Uh, not that I've thought of. The question was, is there any significance of David running from the prophet Samuel to the priest to Himelech? Uh, not that I've thought of. Agreed. Agreed. The the refuge of God is common to both. The one, shall we say, the pneumatic uh, 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 asylum, okay? The other, the tabernacling asylum. Uh, Work on that. Does he then go to the wilderness? Yes, he will go to the wilderness from there. Yes, Mark. Similar to Kay's question, does, and I can't remember, does... um, David and Jonathan ever see each other again after they... One more time in chapter 23, yes. Chapter 20 is the last long face-to-face that they have. 23 will be the final time, and very briefly in chapter 23. Okay, well, uh, thank you. You're free to go. Next week, same time, same station.